Mohammad Darawshe is Arab and Israeli, a Muslim Palestinian citizen of the Jewish state. Like 20% of Israel's population, he is, as he puts it, a child of both identities. He brings an unexpected way of seeing inside the Israeli-Palestinian present and future. I was with my family a couple of years ago in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, and I was arguing with the cashier because we are a family, and I was arguing for a discount in Arabic. And after we got in, you know, the director of marketing came to me and he says, I know you're Israeli, but you speak Arabic. How come? The guy has a master's degree in marketing from Cairo University. And he did not know that in 1948, some of the Palestinian people stayed home. So the Arab world doesn't know of our existence in many cases. And many Israelis don't know, let alone the Western world. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being, stay with us. This podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash being. There are many faces of identity within the Israeli-Palestinian story, many, many more than two sides or even two peoples. This was one of the most striking experiences for me of traveling to Jerusalem and the West Bank earlier this year. Mohammed Darawsh's very identity defies the narrative of conflict so familiar from this land. He is a Muslim citizen of the Jewish state, Arab and Israeli, like 20% of the total population of Israel. And he opens an unexpected way of seeing inside the present and the future. In the past, I used to think about my dual identity as a Palestinian and Israeli as a burden. I think of it today more as an asset, as a power, as a skill that only we have. From APM American Public Media, I'm Krista Tippett. Today on Being, Children of Both Identities. Mohammed Darawsh's family has lived in the same village outside Nazareth for 27 generations. He is known as a political moderate and a leading civic advocate for Arab citizens of Israel. As a group of one and a half million, they experience a strange mix of disadvantage and freedom. They have significantly higher rates of poverty than most Jewish Israelis, and yet Arab citizens are freer to clear the checkpoints and cross the borders that wind through Israel and the occupied territories. They can, for example, live in Jerusalem and visit the West Bank city of Bethlehem, which most Jewish Israelis cannot. They can take their families on vacation to the Dead Sea, which other Palestinians from the West Bank and Gaza cannot. Mohammed Darawsha co-directs an organization called the Abraham Fund Initiatives. His daily work ranges from negotiating with Israeli military officers to getting more of his people, especially women, into the workforce to strengthen their economic well-being. I sat down with him at his office in a suburb of Jerusalem. So, um, as we begin, I'd, I'd just like to hear a little bit about your, your story. It's very, you know, intriguing to hear that you're from a family... Um, that's been rooted in a village near Nazareth for 27 generations. Is that right? And my kids are the 28th generation now. Mm -hmm. We're one of the oldest families uh, that lived, inhabited uh, this community and that can track its history in the place. It it means uh, a lot of social commitments to almost Mm. 6,500 family members in the same village. Iksal is that village, right? Yes, it's called Iksal. Mm -hmm. Uh, 6,500 uh, family members out of the 13,000 <laughs> residents of the village. That's really, that kind of defies the idea of an extended family. Totally. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it means a lot of weddings, a lot of uh, parties. Unfortunately, sometimes also a lot of sad stories that uh, you get exposed and engaged in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that you're intimately connected with. It's hard to be intimately connected with 6,500 people, but... Uh, they feel you feel at home in a lot of homes, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, you don't worry where is your kid if uh, if they're away for a couple of hours. You don't know where they are. You know, yeah. uh, as as a kid, I remember myself when getting hungry. I just look where am I and just go to the next <laughs> house and say I want to eat, <laughs> and mm. and they'll offer you food. You know, because they know you're a family member. Mm. 
but uh, now you know being uh, on more of a leadership position in the community as a council member uh, it means that uh, you don't lock your door also <laughs> Right. Uh, you have to be open to hear, to listen. You don't to get help. a lot of private space. Uh, the term privacy doesn't exist in in that in those conditions. Uh-huh. But I think you know overall, I appreciate it so much because at, at, up to the stage that when I got married, I used to live in Jerusalem for after my education. And when I got married, my condition to my wife was we raise our kids where I was raised uh-huh. because it meant so much. I, uh-huh. You know, the, the warmth, the interdependency, the safety, the security, peace of mind. To feel part of, of a collective. Uh, and it's not just a collective over an issue. It's a collective in, in your heart, in your mindset, in your in your being. Mm-hmm. I go every Friday after the prayer. Uh, I go to uh, visit the uh, graveyard. And when you walk in there... Mm-hmm. You you feel your extension. You feel your 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 depth. Uh, you know every every grave you look at has some relationship to you. Hmm. Every person that comes to visit and uh, hundreds usually come at this hour after the Friday prayer to visit the graveyard. It reminds you of your common uh, connection, and uh, you see them reading a phrase uh, of, of the uh, of the Quran over someone that maybe has died 100 years ago and you go there and you share that prayer with them, it just gives you a different sense of, a different dimension of being, I would say. Mm-hmm. Is your family religious? Is there... I, I would say conservative. I mean, some are very religious, some are very secular. I think the middle way is, is in the conservative side. You know, I think it's more socially think- religious and less religiously religious. So can, by conservative, do you mean traditional? Yes. Uh-huh. It's more traditional, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. Very traditional, but at the same time, you know, traditional family that uh, lives in a modern society. Mm-hmm. So when I uh, when I had a discussion four years ago with my wife about uh, the need for her to go get a university degree after four children, it was a discussion topic uh, for many people, not just for me and her, mm-hmm. because many people in the family allowed themselves to engage in this discussion. What do you mean to send your wife to go to university? She's uh, not uh, 18, 19 years old. She's uh, now a f- woman with four kids. Her place and responsibilities are beyond an 18, 19 year old, what an 18, 19 year old can allow themselves. So we got a lot of discussion and dialogue about this. and But once she she got in, uh, about 30 others followed her. Mm-hmm. 30 married women with children uh, mm-hmm. followed her. And it became a phenomenon that a married woman with children can go to university. Mm-hmm. Somehow uh, the discussion uh, of uh, in, th- in that type of society, you engage in an argument, you engage in a discussion, uh, and you think that it only affects yourself. But once you make the leap, once you make the step forward, it's a leap and it's a step forward and it's a window that you open for much more than yourself and your immediate mm-hmm. family. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, I think it means that your impact could be much more. If you have certain ideas that you want to bring to this community, you have cap, uh, captive audience from one end. Right. Uh, and I think that I, I, as, despite being a conservative community, uh, we have one of the highest ra- rates uh, of uh, female education in the Middle East now. Really? Uh, more than uh, 60% of our high school students are female. More than uh, 55% of our university students from the village are female. This is as good as America, as good as Europe, and in some cases even better than, than some That's European really countries. become very uh, fascinated uh, how the notion of identity in this land has so many connotations uh, that I, I realized I didn't understand any of this before I was here. And your identity in particular, I mean, you, you describe yourself, I believe, as an Arab Israeli. 
Is that right? Um, How I do you describe myself as a Palestinian citizen of Israel? All right. Well, that's what I expected. I, well, maybe it was other people <laughs> who described you as an Arab Israeli, because I've learned that that distinction is important. Yes. All right. Yes. And 20% of the population of Israel is mm-hmm. Arab. I don't think that's something that is part of most people's imagination outside. Uh, so I'd love for you to tell the story of how this came to be. And I think I only really started to understand this when I started reading you and reading about you, that these are essentially mandate Palestinians who stayed home, right? So there was the phenomenon that we're very familiar with, Palestinians who left. They're called immigrants by some and refugees by others. And these are Palestinians who stayed and then found themselves inside the border. Is that right? It's, it's a very unique identity. I mean, first of all, not many in the world know about our mere existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, not many even Israelis know about our existence, although, although we are 20% of society. Uh, not many people in the Arab world know about our existence. I'll just give you an example. I was with my family a couple of years ago in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, a resort right. town in Egypt. And uh, I was arguing with the, the cashier for a discount uh, because we are a family and I was arguing for a discount in Arabic. But I came with my Israeli car with Israeli license plates. And uh, after we got in, you know, the director of marketing came to me and he said, can I ask you a question? I said, what? yes. He says, I know you're Israeli, but you speak Arabic. How come? You spoke to your kids in Arabic also, not only to us. How come? I started explaining exactly your question. Yeah. The guy has a master's degree in marketing from Cairo University. Uh, and he did not know that in 1948, uh, some of the Palestinian people stayed home. And that some was 20% of the Palestinian population. And uh, he was stunned. He thought that we are Jews from uh, Arab countries that still have ability to speak some Arabic language. Right. And so the Arab world doesn't know of our existence in many cases, still in many pockets of ignorance. And many Israelis don't know, let alone the Western world, right. that uh, Israel is a pure uh, Jewish uh, country that is fighting with the rest of the Arab world. In, in 1948, uh, after the war, uh, after Israel's declaration of independence, uh, 164,000 inhabitants, indigenous Palestinians, stayed home. Most of my village ran to the mountains. They did not uh, go to the uh, cross border. And when things calmed down, uh, they went home. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, this uh, home was under a different sovereignty. It was under the sovereignty of the uh, people that we were fighting the day before. Right. And we had to assume the citizenship of the political entity, the state of Israel, which we were fighting its mere existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and naturally, our immediate relationship with the state was uh, more of a security nature because they saw us as part of the enemy. Yes. We saw them as yesterday's enemy. And it took almost 20 years until the state lifted the military administration that was imposed on, on, on our own towns. Uh, but we're left now with the dual identity, right. one which I would call it a, a national, historic, a cultural, emotional Palestinian Arab identity, which we are very proud of, uh, which often is, is uh, used against us when we present it in public in Israel, uh, and it's used against us when we act as a collective in that identity. Right. But we also have uh, an assumed the Israeli civic, uh, cultural, uh, business, political identity. And those two identities are often in clash. They're often uh, fighting between themselves. And uh, imagine, for example, uh, in 2006, four years ago, Israel was at war with one of the neighboring Arab countries, with Lebanon. Right. And uh, missiles were coming from Lebanon and falling not only in Jewish towns, falling also in Arab towns. All right. Let's just remember, this is, two, what did you say, 2006, yes. right? And so it began, there were some rockets fired across the border, some Israeli soldiers killed, and then there was a ground invasion, right, of Lebanon. Uh, so a couple of Israeli... soldiers were uh, uh, captured, okay. uh, kidnapped. Captured and killed, yes. yes. Okay. 
So in and a, you're in the north. Your village is in, in the, the north. north. Yes. And you get missiles that fall on your villages. And a couple of uh, kids from Nazareth were uh, killed. And about, I think, 15 or 17 Arab citizens were killed by missiles coming from, from the Arab world, yes. coming from our yes. identity. Yes. I mean, that's part of our identity. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like you're being attacked by one of your siblings or by one of your parents mm-hmm. uh, that you don't know to hate him or to, to love him. Uh, at the same time, we were having discussion with the Israeli Jewish establishment saying, well, why aren't you protecting us? Right. I enough? remember... Um Reading or hearing something you did around that time, I believe, for the BBC. Yes. You talked about also another, I mean, the irony of this, there's so many layers of irony. You're, you're, being, you're under attack from Hezbollah missiles. And then you described how in your town there were no sirens, that you were dependent on sirens from Israeli towns. And that, the Arab, towns, towns. that the Arab towns also don't have bomb shelters. Exactly. And that, and not only that, I mean, uh, ambulances were refusing to come into Arab towns and villages uh, because, one, either they felt scared that, you know, here's an, here's an Arab town, so an average Israeli would relate to it as an extension of the enemy, uh, or uh, feeling that they don't really owe the Arab community anything because, you know, the neighboring Arab countries are shooting us, so should we go save Arabs? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and to be in this kind of... But you of, are Israeli citizens. And we are Israeli citizens. Here's an excerpt from Mohammed Darouche's BBC commentary during the 2006 Lebanon War. A few days ago, an Israeli Jewish friend and I talked about the war. He said he'd had the most depressing conversation with his parents the day before. I can't get it out of my mind, he told me. My dad says the Israeli Arabs are supporting Hezbollah. I answered that the Israeli Arab community is against the destruction of Lebanon, but I think that's far from supporting Hezbollah. Last Friday, after the drop of Hezbollah's newest nine-meter-long rockets, my wife packed and left with our three daughters to her family in Jerusalem. My 11-year-old boy and I stayed home, challenging fate and destiny, and refusing to become refugees, even for a few days. Hear that entire commentary on our website, onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett, On Being, conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today, children of both identities. I interviewed Mohammed Darousha outside Jerusalem at the offices of the Abraham Fund Initiatives, which he co-directs. You know, you you also wrote somewhere about growing up in the seventies and learning in civics classes that that you were Arab citizens of Israel and that you would someday be a bridge for peace between yes. this country and the Arab world. And I still believe in it. I still believe that the Arab citizens of Israel are going to fill the most important role in Israeli Arab world relations. I still think that we will be the bridge, cultural bridge, political bridge, economic bridge, social bridge, you name it. But someone forgets that, or many people forget that the bridge needs to have foundation on both sides. Mm. You know, you cannot be a bridge without having a strong leg on one side of the mm-hmm. river and another uh, strong foot on the other side of the river. And you're also very much caught. I mean, you are caught between both sides, right? Wasn't it also that Arafat and the PLO said, seek your future in Israel? That was in the 90s, mid-90s. 90s. Yes, mm-hmm. mid-90s. Uh, basically, 1992, after the... Uh, the Oslo negotiations. Okay. You know, we, we came to Arafat and we said, well, you're the, you're the president of the Palestinian people. You're negotiating an end of conflict. Mm-hmm. Our status uh, in Israel as second-class citizens is a result of the conflict. So if you're negotiating an end of the conflict, negotiate our status. Mm-hmm. And he said, I can't. I'm, I'm dealing with the Palestinian refugees. I'm dealing with the Palestinians under occupation. But what's your problem? You're home. Mm-hmm. Seek your destiny in Israel. And we're seeking our destiny in Israel. We want to stay in Israel. We want to stay home. I'm not going to volunteer 
becoming a refugee not for the sake of uh, Palestinian nationalism and not for the sake of uh, helping Israelis uh, reduce the demographic size of the Arab citizens here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're home. Uh, we're in our homeland. Uh, our, I, I think that uh, my uh, biggest challenge is how to help Israel become uh, an act as my country also, not just as my homeland. And I think that Israel needs to mature. Uh, and that's what I'm trying to do every day. It's interesting, that language of maturity and maturing, I've heard from Palestinians and Israelis that, that there needs to be a human evolution. Absolutely. And a maturing of humanity. Um, and, and I think I hear also people on both sides who see that, um, who see that it's below the radar, um, sure. who see that you know, there's one step forward and two steps back, but that as a large phenomenon. Do you, do you feel that that's at least the direction? I think we are in two steps forward, one step backwards, but very painful one step backwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that we are overall progressing in the right direction uh, as human beings before you the mean political the Palestinians issues. Palestinians and yes, Israelis. Palestinians and mm-hmm. Israelis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that uh, 20 years down the road will be better than where we are today. I think today we are better than we were 20 years ago. Uh, you know, in, in, in a lot of ways, uh, I would say as children of both identities, mm. you know, I would say that we have, a par- we have two parents. We have the Israeli civic uh, parent and we have the Palestinian national parent. And in this case, we are better children from both ends. Yes. You know, yes. Uh, but I think that we, we have a vested interest that, uh, that those two parents uh, at least uh, draw a clear divorce agreement. Okay. Maybe not <laughs> renew their marriage mm-hmm. uh, or maybe not have a marriage, but at least have clarity over their divorce agreement uh, so that at least from our own identity, we have some sort of settlement. And yeah, and I mean, if you use that analogy, uh, divorce is messy in the beginning, and then hopefully you live into a. And the parents remain vested common interests for both parents, and even perhaps become friends, and hopefully, yes. But I think that you know, in this case, uh, when I say we want to be the bridge for peace, uh, and we can play the bridge for peace, you know, in the past I used to think about my uh, dual identity as a Palestinian and Israeli uh, as a burden or sometimes even as a handicap. I think of it today more as an asset, Mm. as a power, as a skill that only we have. We speak Hebrew, we speak Arabic. We know the history and and pain of the Jewish people. We know the history and pain of the Palestinian people. We empathize with the pain of the Jewish people. We empathize with the pain of the Palestinian people. I want to see the... Uh, destiny and and uh, and uh, aspirations of the Palestinian people uh, for safety and security and independence be fulfilled. I want to see the same aspirations of the Jewish people fulfilled. And I don't think it is a, a zero-sum game mm-hmm. that one will win and one will lose. I think there is a middle ground in which both nations will go through the stage of self-fulfillment and we, that we're not there yet. We're not, neither of those nations at the stage of self-fulfillment that can allow itself to uh, engage uh, in, in, in the right neighborly or even family relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, ultimately, the two uh, people, the Palestinians and the Israelis, will continue to be interdependent in security, in environment, in right. Uh, right. every issue of, the, of, of life. We share the same uh, space, the same air, the same... Uh, the same even historic narratives. I mean, we disagree on the last 60 years. But we go to Abraham, this organization that I work in, mm-hmm. it's called the Abraham Fund Initiatives. It is named after the common father. And you have a reverence for Abraham in common. Yes, and we, don't, and we, we say he's, he's our common father, not, not only uh, from a genetic point of view, but from conceptual point of view, from religious, from deep understanding of the values that came from that uh, individual. We, we subscribe to the notion of uh, the value of human being, the value of family relations, the value of perceptions and of, of, of the big issues of, of humanity. And uh, 
the beginning of the end. And uh, I think that mm. uh, the commonalities there exist in, 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 the, in a deep sense that we have uh, detached ourselves from them uh, and, and dealing with only that day-to-day matters of discrimination, killing, beating, this, that. Uh, we're dealing with the surface of the problem and instead of dealing with the essence of our connection. Conversation with Mohammed Darausha is the first show we've produced from our March production trip to Israel and the West Bank. Two weeks from now, we'll build on some of these same themes, drawing out the complexity of meaning within categories of Israeli and Palestinian, this time with Israeli journalist Yossi Klein Halevi. In the meantime, visit us at onbeing.org. There you can also watch our conversation with Izaldin Abuleish, a Palestinian doctor who first came to Americans' attention when shells hit his home in the Gaza Strip and killed his three daughters and niece. He sat down with our executive producer, Kate Moose, to discuss his hopes for peace, which he talks about in his new book, I Shall Not Hate. And please check out this show's website, where we feature blog posts from our trip. There was a serendipitous moment of Muazin's calls to prayer overlapping with Korean Christian hymns on the Mount of Olives. There are rich photographs and descriptions of the struggling city of Hebron. This reporting trip was revelatory for us, and we share that with you at onbeing.org. Coming up, the role Mohammed Darausha wants Arab citizens of Israel to play as a voice of Israel in the greater Middle East and as mediators for the Arab world in Israel. I'm Krista Tippett. This program comes to you from APM, American Public Media. This podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles. For a free audiobook of your choice, including Speaking of Faith by Krista Tippett, go to audiblepodcast.com slash being. On Being is supported by the Fetzer Institute, sponsor of Karin Armstrong's Charter for Compassion. You can learn more at Fetzer.org. Garrison Keillor's new anthology, Good Poems, American Places, is now available. It's a generous selection of poems by American poets expressing their love of American scenes. Get a copy at 800-998-8173 or at writersalmanac.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Today on Being, Children of Both Identities. Mohammed Darausha is an Arab citizen of Israel, a civic leader and a moderate who opens an unexpected way into seeing the Israeli-Palestinian present and future. I interviewed him outside Jerusalem at the offices of the Abraham Fund Initiatives, which he co-directs. Mohammed Darausha's family has inhabited the same village near Nazareth for 27 generations. They achieved their strange dual identity of Palestinian and Israeli by staying home in and beyond the 1948 war that led to the creation of the modern Jewish state. It's interesting. I, another thing that I have learned in this week here is that 60 years, you say it's, it's 60 years that you disagree on, and 60 years is nothing here. <laughs> it's um, yesterday. <laughs> yeah, it's yesterday. So, so let's talk about the Abraham Fund and, and, and how, how do you make that vision of the, not just, as you said, the genetic, but the conceptual importance of this shared narrative. How do you make that real in concrete ways? What do you do here? Well, you need to translate ideas into action. Uh, you know, I think that uh, I once uh, worked for an organization that called itself the Institute for Practical Idealism. I like that. <laughs> I've heard I, younger people talk about being pragmatic idealists. I think they will save us, too. <laughs> so, in, in a sense, we are practical idealists. Yeah. It's how do you bring your idealism into a... a, a make it a different reality on the ground. A, I think one of the key problems in Israel is that it does not legitimize... Israeli Jews do not see the normal uh, Arab citizen. They see the political Arab citizen. Okay. They see the security Arab citizen. And one of the, our key uh, jobs here 
is to expose uh, the human nature of Arab citizens, to expose the business nature of Arab citizens, mm -hmm. to expose the municipal nature of Arab citizens. Uh, we have a department here that all of its work is what we call public advocacy, is to bring the average Arab citizen to the attention of the Israeli Jewish public. So, so tell me this. I, I had the impression earlier in the week talking with Israelis, uh, Jewish Israelis, that... Um, that they do, they can, uh, many of them see that there's the socioeconomic and civil condition of Palestinians, but that that, it's very hard to have that discussion separate, that it gets tangled up with the political and security issues, and so it stalls. True. Is that, is that? It's a good reading of, of, uh, of the reality, uh, and, uh, and I think in a way, they're missing out a big opportunity here. Hmm. I think that the Israeli Jewish public is missing a, the opportunity of having partners that accept the definition of the state of Israel as the state of the Jewish people. Uh, that I, I think that uh, in, in a way, and again, going back to my Abrahamic faith, mm -hmm. uh, I do feel responsibility for the destiny of the, and, and well-being of the Jewish people. And, and again, I think, so the issue for you is you say that from a very different perspective, but you become conflated with... I don't know, a representative of Hamas in, in Gaza, right? I mean, there's... I'm, and I'm happy to have a different uh, perspective and, and mindset. You know, yes, I'm a part of the minority in Israel, but I think I have the mindset of a majority in the region. In the, and region. I, in and the region. By that, what do you mean? I mean that we have, you know, when you're a majority, it means you have responsibility. Mm -hmm. But As what a, is the region for you when you say the region? The Middle East. Mean? Really? The Middle East, mm -hmm. yes. Uh, although I'm, I'm not organizationally structured in any formal relationship with the people in the Middle East, mm -hmm. uh, but I, I have the mindset of a majority, uh, of part of the majority. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to, to my Israeli Jewish uh, colleagues, I always say, uh, yeah, in Israel, they're the majority, but they have the mindset of a minority. They're, they're closing the country to Jews only instead of acting with the responsibility of a majority, which means you open yourself and you allow space for the minority, which in a way is also a responsibility for me as a member of the collective regional majority. Mm -hmm. I need to create space for the Jewish people to also be amongst us. So, And that goes back to the problem of identities, because mm -hmm. at one stage I'm a minority fighting for rights and integration right. in the Jewish majority. At the other end, I'm part of the regional majority that right. needs, has a responsibility to create space for the Jewish minority in the region. Yes. And, and, and I think that if we, if we find the right formula of integration of the Arab citizens in Israel, it is the exact formula for integration of the Jewish people in the Middle East. Do you... Um, I hadn't planned on asking you about this. I might have asked other people about what's been happening in Egypt and Tunisia, you know, in the larger Arab world. Um, do you feel that this... I mean, it's very, you know, there's a long road ahead to see how this unfolds. But could this be um, a moment where, as you say, that majority mindset that could create a, a more hospitable environment for Israelis to experience? Could, could, could that be one of the manifestations that comes out of this democratic energy? It could be. I think it, what's happening is, is good news. Uh, the fact that... Uh, there's more public engagement and there's more, um, there are many more minds making the decisions and not just one individual that decides based on what side of the bed he walk on, but uh, really uh, to have a collective mindset of a community that does see uh, an interest for, for, for the Arab world in, in resolving the conflict. There is an interest for the people of the Arab world to resolve the conflict and not to keep the conflict uh, running for four years. People want to go over Mm -hmm. the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and want to have a proper solution that allows it to deal with uh, issues of human values and prosperity and economic development and, and, and uh, intellectual growth and, uh, and so on. Uh, but I think that uh, we started playing a, a serious role in, in the public discourse in the Arab world uh, for in the past, I would say, seven years uh, since... Many of the uh, Arab TV stations started uh, covering Israel properly and not just covering it from, a, a, I would say, 
traditional uh, demagogic style, mm-hmm. but covering it with an investigative style. I don't think that's a story that's been told in the outside, that no, there's I been a change in that journalism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think a significant change. And uh, the key players in that change are Arab Israeli citizens. Mm. We are the ones that are being interviewed about what is Israel really. You know, the, the Arab world knew one Israel uh, in the past, and we know many Israels. We know the Israel of the left, we know the Israel of the right, we know the Israel of the Haredim, we know the Israel of the religious, of the non-religious, of the business people, of the high-tech people, of the academics, of the culture. Of the, we, we know different faces of Israel that we can express it in Arabic. And more and more people in the Arab world through the satellite TV stations are seeing Israel through our eyes. Mm. And reading it and hearing it from our own mouths, mm-hmm. uh, which makes it a more tangible Israel, a more realistic and less conceptual Israel. And the more uh, I think we're really playing that role of bridging, uh, at least on the level of, of, of the distance of, of ignorance of the Arab world about Israel. Uh, and I think we can play it on the opposite direction, bringing the Arab world right. to the Israeli uh, Jewish public. It doesn't mean that it's very easy and it's not moving in the right speed. I think it's moving in a very slow speed. But the events in the last few months, I think, can make things much, much go a little bit faster. I'm Krista Tippett on Being conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today, children of both identities. My interview in Israel with Mohammed Darausha, a leading voice of Arab citizens of Israel. I meant to say, this is part of your story, that you're was it your uncle was the first uh, Arab member of the Knesset? Is no, that... he was the first, uh, he formed the first One of the Arab first... parties. Okay. The and did he serve in the Israeli Knesset? He served in the Israeli Knesset. Yeah, he was he elected had, uh, four times. Four times, yeah. yes. I mean, that's another story of Israel that people don't realize. Yeah. Today there are 12 Arab members of the Knesset. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are 10% of the members of parliament. Yes, we are 20% of the population. So there is a little bit of uh, under-representation. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of it is our fault, some of it is systematic fault. Uh, but that's a tool that we haven't even uh, uh, used properly yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly uh, because many people ask themselves and people ask me all the time, why don't you go to parliament? Why don't you run to parliament? And I say, you know, it's not time yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to go to parliament only when I can have a constructive engagement with Israeli Jewish members of parliament. Today, uh, most Arab members of the Knesset are uh, the magnet for the anger of the Israeli Jewish public. And I don't want to play that game. Mm. Uh, I think that uh, it's easy today to blame uh, the Arab members of the Knesset for every trouble that Israel has around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and instead of being there, I would like, I prefer to be in, in a, a different constructive format. I would go to parliament when I see that there is majority Israelis ready to make the significant leap forward in changing Jewish-Arab relations. Have the Arab members of the Knesset also brought some of that on themselves? I mean, it, 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 do their roles need to grow also for that I think to that, not be such a magnet? I don't know. Yeah, I think we, we need the revolution in mindset also. On mm-hmm. What do we mean when we send representatives to parliament? Are we just a, a voice of opposition, uh, which is a job that we do very well? Or are we a voice of integration and engagement? And uh, and we went through this uh, dialogue more significantly during in the, in the early 90s, during the Rabin government, when there was someone to tango with. Hmm. Uh, Rabin was ready to dance tango with us. Uh, I worked in the parliament at that time as a coordinator of one of the political parties, our political parties, and we did have very good working relationship. But since uh, he was assassinated in 1995, I haven't seen uh, a significant Israeli Jewish leader that is ready to dance this game of coexistence and of uh, integration. And that's why I think, for me, it's not time to be in, mm-hmm. in that arena. 
Um, you know, it's very energizing to talk to you and to um, it. it uh, so, when I came into this, I, I think about you know one of again one of the peculiarities we kind of named this of your identity as a Palestinian citizen of Israel is uh, you share the the pain of both sides, right? You 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 or you participate in the pain of both sides. At least these last sixty years. <laughs> At least I carry the burden of both sides. <laughs> you do, but I there's also um, I, I think as much as anybody I've spoken with, there's an incredible energy. I mean, you are walking into the future with um, very engaged, and it's it's very hopeful to talk to you. I mean, is hopeful a word you would use to describe yourself? And I think about this every day. You know, because you get uh, you get challenges to you, and and, and you, I get challenges to my path every time I hear the news, and you hear the news ten times a day in Israel. And then I think about you know what's my role, you know what's what's my job into this. Uh, I used to think of myself as a, as an optimist. Uh, at some stage, I started thinking of myself as a pessimist. I'm really scared of where we're going because sometimes you feel you're in a crash course. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's really my optimism that drives me, but sometimes I find it's my pessimism that if I do not engage, then it's a crash course. Uh, But I think that what made me in the last uh, 16 years uh, a believer and a person of hope uh, is my commitment to my children as being a parent, and I think that the reason I come to work every day is because I want to be a good parent. Mm-hmm. I want to be able that uh, my children will have a better reality than what I have, and a significantly better reality. Because I think that if you do not put your full attention and make your maximum effort now, uh, the chances of of a crash course. Uh, the chances of derailing uh, Jewish-Arab relations is is very dangerous. Uh, I have uh, my wife has three sisters that they live in the United States, and very often they say, you know, come live here. You know, things are easy. And so sometimes you contemplate this idea, but then you say, well, who do I leave behind? You know, I can find a solution for my wife, myself, and my four children. Hmm. What about my parents? What about my 6,500 relatives? Exactly. <laughs> you know, who do I leave them for? Mm-hmm. What about the rest of my 1.3 million Arab citizens in Israel? Who, are, who do I leave them for? You, it's, it's like abandoning ship, and I do not want to abandon ship. I think that in my little uh, effort, I can help maybe steer it in the right direction. Uh, maybe, I, you know, when you row a boat, I'm, I'm just one person on a long boat that has many people that throw that boat. But in, in, in my little effort, I can try to at least steer it in the right direction. Uh, I think that uh, there hasn't been the right level of talking between Jews and Arabs in Israel. And I think the right level has to go beyond the stage of blaming to some stage of building together, to some stage of empathy, to some stage of legitimacy and acceptance. Uh, and once we realize that everyone is here to stay, Arabs are here to stay. Jews are here to stay. No one is doing anyone a favor by allowing, sort of speak, the other to stay. Mm-hmm. Everyone is here to stay because they deserve it, because this is home for them. This is my homeland. No one can say to me, it's not my homeland. This is the homeland of the Jewish people. No one can say to them, this is not their homeland. Uh, we need to learn how to do it together. We're doing a lousy job now as a collective. And I think that if you have a little bit of, of, uh, of foresight, if you can see uh, 500 years back in history, and you can see five years down in the future, uh, you can see that it's there are things that can be done. There are solutions that can be applied. Uh, they're difficult. I'm, I'm, I'm very much a realist, and I know the difficulties. Uh, I, I just before I met with you, I was meeting with people from the Israeli military, mm. uh, talking the IDF. about yes, with mm-hmm. IDF, talking to them about uh, the services that they fail in providing 
to the Arab community at times of war. Security services. Security mm-hmm. services. Uh, and I, I, I was having a very serious discussion with them. And uh, you talk to the establishment, which very often is seen as the problem. Uh, I allow myself to talk to almost everyone. Once I had my son with me and uh, I was speaking to a group of this police officers. Police officers in Israel? In Jewish Israel, Israel. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I, my, my son, who was at the time uh, six years old, he said, can I come? I said, sure. And the police officer, one of the officers said to me, can we ask you to take your son out of the room? I said, why? And he said to me, you're trying to force us to look at you as a human being, mm. uh, as a parent. And uh, that's manipulation. And you know, you're dealing, you're talking, you talk to someone that basically refuses the concept that 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 once allows he doesn't want to allow himself to see you as a parent, to see you as a human being. And uh, I think that uh, in a way uh, we have to humanize the issue as much as we can. The more we can give. A face to an Arab citizen, the more right. we can and give a face to And on both sides, I mean, that's citizen. also part of that trauma, that those layers of trauma that have built up over these years. Of I, f- I find one thing, I hear about a grievance, and then behind every grievance is another grievance, and this, en- this endless cycle. And they're not all equal, right? But You know, we're, 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 we compete, Jews and Arabs continue to compete. Who's, who's more victim than the other? It's, by the way, it's a story since Abraham. <laughs> Who did Abraham wanted to sacrifice? Right, Ishmael or Isaac. <laughs> Ishmael or Isaac. <laughs> right. And today we're competing. Who's more the victim of history? Is it the Jews with what they go, went through mm-hmm. in in, uh, in Germany? Or is it the Palestinians and what they went through here? Naturally, you cannot compare pain and you cannot right. compare victimhood. But it, it imprints itself on yeah, everyone. Exactly. You know, and so when I, the story you tell about meeting with the IDF soldiers, you're, you're telling a story very difficult. Just painful discussions, or this story you just told. But on the other hand, for me, it's a hopeful vision. It's an inspiring vision that that these conversations are taking place. They have to take place. They have to take. And that place. they, in fact, are civil conversations. Maybe painful, and maybe all the behavior is not good. But they 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 suggest that that it's possible. I was speaking to a colleague after I went out of this meeting with this police officer and he said to me, how do you feel? I said, I said, I have a stomach ache. I have a headache. It was very difficult for me to go there, but I'm looking for the next invitation to go. You know, it, so this dialogue is not easy. It, it is, it is, sometimes it, it turns you upside down and it, uh, it humiliates you. It, uh, it challenges many things that you that you think should not be challenged in, in your identity, in your, in your humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, this road shouldn't be an easy road, and you shouldn't just pick the uh, the, the nice aesthetic uh, uh, arenas. I think that if you want to change reality, you need to engage in your reality. You need to get your hands dirty. Uh, and then you worry about washing them and get them clean. Mm. But you need to get them dirty in the right action, working in the right direction. Some people ask me, well, how do you allow yourself to go and talk to the prime minister's office or talk to this? I talk to everyone because it's him I want to change. Mm. It's easy to sit and and write an intellectual uh, article uh, and print it in Arabic. I want to say it in Hebrew and talk to the person that can decide in the Jewish community. I want also to say it in Arabic and talk to the people in the Arab community. That's my share. But my, I think that we need to use the skill and ability of being able to talk to the Jewish public. And this is how you can try to find the common ground. Mohamed Darousha is co-executive director of the Abraham Fund Initiatives in Israel.
You can watch video of my entire unedited conversation with Mohammad Darawshe on our website, onbeing.org. There you can also read a transcript or listen again to the show. We're creating a special website that will feature the range of voices we captured in 10 days in Jerusalem and the West Bank. That includes my interview with Yossi Klein Halevi, a Jewish-Israeli journalist, which we'll be broadcasting next two weeks from now. And on our blog, find the work of USC graduate students from the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. Janine Rayford profiles an Arab-Israeli sculptor who is renovating his 400-year-old home. Jessica Donath writes about a progressive design school based on the notion that living coexistence is more important than talking about it. And as always, join us by following along in real time on our blog, Twitter at BeingTweets, and our Facebook page. It's a great space to learn more about the world and yourself on being.org. This program is produced by Chris Hegel, Nancy Rosenbaum, and Susan Lean. Anne Breckbill is our web developer. Very special thanks this week to Fuad Abu Ghosh. Trent Gillis is our senior editor. Kate Moose is executive producer. And I'm Krista Tippett. On Being is supported by the Fetzer Institute, sponsor of Karin Armstrong's Charter for Compassion. You can learn more at Fetzer.org. Additional support comes from the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. And the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. Next time for Mother's Day, the delightful Jewish-Buddhist teacher, mother, and grandmother, Sylvia Borstein. We talk about nourishing our inner lives and those of our children. I interviewed her in a public event in Detroit about life with the small people who have a mortgage on our hearts. Nobody tells you that. They don't say when they hear. They don't say, uh-oh, you know, brace yourself. They say, <laughs> they say congratulations. Because, right. you know, Krista, it's both. To create a new life that comes out with fingernails and eyelashes and all of all its fingers and toes, it's an amazing thing. And it's extremely awakening in the sense of knowing how vulnerable we are. That's next week. Please join us. This is APM, American Public Media.